Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, so we decided we're going to start the year talking about foundations, uh, foundations of biblical truth, setting ourselves, a lot of currents flowing in our culture, and if you don't have a good foundation, you get blown around, don't you? So 500 years ago, uh, though the Protestant Reformation, uh, people came together um, in London at Westminster Abbey, scholars uh, uh, theologians, pastors, they met for over three years to basically answer the question, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach about itself? What does the Bible teach about, um, what does the Bible say about all sort of manner of things? And they produced a confession. It was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, right there, um, Westminster Hall, right there, uh, Parliament, um, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, Big Ben right across the street. If you've ever been there, that's right where this happened meeting in Westminster Abbey. So the first chapter of the confession says, what, what is the Bible, right? What does the Bible say about itself? That's the, that's the fountain of, uh, of, of truth. Uh, and then we have a chapter who's the main character of the Bible. Well, God, who is God? And what does the Bible tell us about God? What is the Bible's his self-revelation? Um, and then we learn about what God uh, chooses to do, he, his creative power. How did, uh, how did the world come to be? How did we come to be? And then we talked about the fall of man. How does man screw it up, right? Um, the beauty of God's creation. How do we rebel against God? And then what does God do about that rebellion? Um, how does uh, Jesus come as the mediator between us and God to, to restore us from alienation? Last week, Adam Jones preached on justification. That's what Jesus accomplishes. He makes us right with um, God, all who belong to him. And then that leads us this week to the subject of adoption. I'm going to let the other guys preach when we get to things like divorce and hell and things like that. I'm preaching on adoption. Um, So um, let's read from Romans chapter 8. If you're able and willing, why don't you stand? We're going to start at just a few verses, starting at verse 14. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church, the church of of Asia Minor as well, and, and obviously to all Christians who have come since. And he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This then is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Jesus, help us. Send your Holy Spirit on Seven Rivers Church because believing this is so hard. 
but it bears so much fruit in our lives and in our families for generations to come if we experience you as our Father. So help us. We seem to fight the things we need most to grasp. Make our hearts soft. Help us to listen with unusual attentiveness. Lord, pull back the bow and send the arrow of your Father love right into our hearts, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So having a worthy father matters. Sometimes it's hard to consider that anything could matter more. Who could tell the, the good that's done, again, not just for a family, but the family to follow and the family to follow by worthy fathering? And who could recount the devastation that could befall an absence of worthy fathering? So a counselor friend was writing about a man who came um, to his office and the man described his childhood. He actually grew up uh, the son of a pastor. He said his father was known in the church for being uh, gregarious and uh, uh, caring and engaged and um, he seemed to be well loved by the congregation. But all of that uh, seemed to stop at the threshold of their house. He said uh, in the house his father was indifferent uh, to him. He was critical. Uh, If anything he grew up with was a sense that he was a constant disappointment um, to his father. He was not the man's man his father was. His father was intelligent, a reader, well-educated, a thinker. um, And his son did not measure up. Believe it or not, the the, the, the man who had gone to counseling had decided to become a pastor too. And, uh, but he had just been drummed out of his church because it was discovered he was addicted to pornography. The church didn't know the half of it really. They didn't know that he was also addicted to drugs and alcohol. And uh, his life was a, a, an utter wreck. The counselor asked, what is it that, that when you turn to pornography, what, are you, what is it you long for? And he said, uh, what I long for is just the feeling, the desire that somebody notices me. Somebody would hold me and love me. In fact, he described a Sunday afternoon his father camped on the couch watching um, professional football. He didn't care much about football, but he knew his dad did, so he kind of got up next to his dad on the couch to try to connect and watch with him only to have his dad turn and look at him and say you know any boy who doesn't like football is just a sissy the devastation of an unworthy father a couple years ago a woman came from Denver she spoke at an event sponsored by Aspire a wonderful local ministry that we support and love She told us in the crowd that girls had gone wild in our culture, that boys don't have to pursue um, girls anymore, that uh, they are aggressive and uh, they stalk boys, they pursue them, they're desperate, they call guys, they email guys, they text guys, they sext guys. Um, And she said, you just don't, you don't equate it to your childhood. It's nothing like that anymore. Guys don't have to do a thing. 
The girls are driven, she said, by a deep internal hunger for male affection that they find absent in their own home and their upbringing. You with me? The importance of a worthy father. So these are negative examples, but it's not hard to find positive ones other. In fact, someone sent me a TikTok uh, recently, and if you don't know what a TikTok is, then God has been good to you. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was Tom Brady, and it wasn't recent. It was some years ago, uh, but it, it was at like a Super Bowl fan day. And, uh, and actually, it wasn't a reporter. It was a dad that comes up to him because he has a little child on his shoulders. And he says, can my um, son ask you a question? And the son um, says, you're a lot of people's hero. He says to Tom Brady, but who's your hero? How you doing? But many people say you're their hero, but who's your hero? Who's my hero? All right. That's a great question. Well, I think my dad is my hero because he's someone that I look up to every day. And uh, my dad. That's something. That well of, um, of affection. I, I mean, that was a kid asked a question. That wasn't some hardened journalist. That was, that was a child. And, and even to tell a child about his father, he, he couldn't even get the words out. Um, overcome with affection. My, oh, my. How do, you, how do you get a worthy father? How do you become a worthy father? The answer is before us this morning, Adoption. That's how you get a worthy father, adoption. You see, when Paul wrote about adoption in the book of Romans, adoption was not a common practice in the ancient world. But interestingly enough, it was in Rome because Rome, of course, was um, the center of wealth. And, uh, and it was the wealthy uh, who adopted. In the ancient world, when a wealthy man had no heirs, he would adopt a teenager or even a grown man, right? Some of you are gonna go home and write uh, Elon Musk and, and ask to be adopted. Um, that's what happened. Uh, a wealthy man had no heirs and all that he had, so he would adopt a, uh, a teenager or a, or a man and immediately all that person's debts um, would be the responsibility of his new father and all the wealth and prestige and status of the adopting father became the rightful possession of the adopted son. And it's out of that context that Paul uh, says, this is what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. You are adopted by God. You become a, become a son of God. All of your problems become his. All of his status, wealth, prestige, and importance becomes yours. Staggering. So what is a Christian J.I. Packer wrote in the book, Knowing God? If you've never read the book, Knowing God, I read it in college and it changed my life. And when I read this chapter, Sons of God, the chapter is called this week, it rocked me again. What is a Christian? He says, the richest answer I know is a Christian is one who has God for his father. That's what a Christian is. He said that it is the climax of the entire biblical story. Adoption is the climax. So we're going to talk about it together, but before I go on, I want to tell you something. I was a Christian, and I was a pastor of this church for many years, but lived 
like an insecure orphan, not, by, not like a son of God. And I damaged people with my leadership in my home and in this church. I was an unworthy leader until this truth changed me. And I realized that I wasn't just forgiven, right? I wasn't just saved by God, but I was actually a son, a cherished son, a beloved son. And when you experience having God as your father, it's a game changer. So ready to go? Let's go. Got a sermon outline, it's right in your uh, worship folder. We're just gonna talk about the facts of adoption. How does it happen? How do you get adopted by um, God? How do we become sons of God? You gotta say it's supernatural, it's not natural. We are not naturally God's children. It isn't that you just have to wake up one day and realize that, that you're God's children. That's not how it happens. We are not naturally God's children. We are not God's children by birth. It is not automatic. Once we were not in the family of God, if you are a Christian, you are now in the family of God. So it's not the way um, we started our journey, right? Jesus is God's only natural child. All others have to be adopted. Our natural condition is not in the family. Our natural condition is separated from God, alienated from God, with enmity toward God, disconnected, orphaned, runaways, alone. That's our natural condition. We've rejected God, we don't want God, we've left home, we are not his children. It is common for people to say, we're all children of God, right? Everyone has heard people say that. Everybody's a child of God. Doesn't matter, Christian, Jew, uh, Muslim, Hindu, red, yellow, black, white, we're all children of God. Well, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Um, it depends on how you, what you're talking about. Yes, everything in all the world was made by God, right? Um, everything owes its existence um, to God, right? Um, and every creature in the world is equal in dignity and worth, right? Every person, because they're made in the image of God. And so in that way, you could say God is the father of everyone in that God produced us all, right? If it weren't for God, we wouldn't be here, any of us or anything, right? In that respect, you could talk about God as the father of all. But what the Bible's talking about here, about being children of God, is far more intimate than that, right? It's far more intimate, familial, and personal than that. Sonship, what does it say in John 1, 12? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the what? He gave the right to become children of God. You have to become a child of God. It's not natural, it's supernatural. So how's it secured? That's the next point. This is only a two-point sermon. I'm flying through the first one. This is so hopeful. Um, don't be naive. Um, our sonship is secured uh, by Jesus. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to buy them back. That's what redeem means, to ransom us so that we might receive adoption as sons. God secures our adoption. What's the confession say? All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, 
to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God and have his name put on them. It's secured by Jesus. All those, put the, keep the confession up there, all those who are made just, it says, all those that are justified partake of the grace of adoption. So what does justification mean? This is what Adam talked about last week. Justification means that we're not right with God, but God takes away our sins, makes us beautiful in the presence of God so that there's nothing between us and God. We're made just, we're made righteous, we are made children. Now this is so important. because I've been teaching the pastor's class for almost 40 years in this church And I ask every person who comes to the class at the beginning, if you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And half the people give what we call a non-Christian answer, something that indicates that they've done something that merits heaven. The other half give what we'll call a Christian answer. They say, Jesus died for my sins. In other words, the judge has banged a gavel um, and he has declared me not guilty because of what Jesus did. Jesus bore the penalty for my transgression. I don't bear that penalty myself. Here's the problem with that. It's just not complete. Jesus doesn't, you know, a judge, you could come before a judge, and some of you have, and I'm trying not to look at you. Um, you can go before a judge, and the judge can bang the gavel, and you can be not guilty and you can walk out of the courtroom not guilty, but, but the judge could despise you, right? It doesn't mean the judge who, who has decided you're not guilty likes you. It doesn't mean they're for you. Could have been a technicality. It could have been that, you know, some, something got you off. It could have been whatever the evidence wasn't sufficient. So you're not guilty. You're officially, legally not guilty, but it doesn't imply any affection from the judge for you. It's just a, a, a jurisprudential decision, right? Um, but that's not what the Bible talks about. What the Bible says is God says you're not guilty. And, and not only that, um, Jesus, my son, has paid the penalty for your rebellion. But he's also covered you with his righteousness so you're beautiful to me. You're coming home with me. You're going to live in my house. I love you. See the difference? That's the difference between just being saved from your sins. Jesus saved me from my sins. No, he also adopted you. He made you his child, right? Now, there's something beautiful in the confession. Throw that up there again, where it says, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and, what's the next word? Your adoption is not just for you, it's for somebody else. God adopts you for Jesus. In other words, you are the reward of his suffering. Because of his suffering, because of his sacrificial life and death, he gets you. Brothers and sisters, his family, he bought you, he died for you, and God adopts you for him. You're his treasure. Just beautiful stuff, isn't it? Um, so the Bible says because we belong to Jesus because we're the children of God we're brothers and sisters of Jesus we get a new name we get our brother's name we get the same name as our brother right that's what happens when you are adopted that you change your name right 
That's why you're called a what? Jesus the Christ. And you are called what? Christians. A new name. We're family. It's legal. It's forever. So years ago, I spoke with a man at a conference, and he told this um, story. It's a stunning story. When his mother was 14 years old, she fell in the arms of a lonely soldier boy, and, um, and this man telling the story um, was conceived. So he was born um, to a teenage mom. Her parents kicked uh, her out of the house, and so he was born essentially into a homeless shelter. He lived the first year of his life in a homeless shelter. Uh, she, had no, she had no home, his mother. Um, in the next five years, she had five more children by five different um, men. Um, and uh, he said uh, often she would bring men home from the bars, men that were drunk. They would engage in all kinds of perversions in our presence. We were molested. Uh, finally, the authorities uh, found out. They took us away in pairs. The first home my sister and I went to, I, we cowered in the corner of the kitchen and watched the foster father of that home in a drunken rage beat his wife to death with a hammer. We went from that home to another home where we ate out of dog dishes. I wet the bed until I was 12 years old. Between the ages of 6 and 12, I was in eight different homes. I didn't know who I was. I was a Winners, then an Edwards, a Strickland, and then a Lee. I had all kinds of names. I remember at age 10, going out behind a barn at a potato farm in eastern Washington, falling in the dirt and weeping, getting up out of the dirt with mud caked on my face and crying out, God, I hate you. I had the social ability of a five-year-old. In sixth grade, one of my teachers wrote on my report card, this boy will never amount to anything. I thought God had abandoned me, but over in western Washington, there was a fisherman who was 45 years old. He and his wife were unable to have children, so they went to the authorities with a request to adopt. The authorities said they were too old, but they could have a teenager. They warned them that teenagers are psychologically truncated, but my mother said, I want one. They brought her a book, 500 pictures of teenage orphans and children without parents. She opened the book, looking through all the pictures, and for some reason known only to God, she came to my picture and said, that's my boy. Now you know where he goes from here. You know it. That's the day that what? That's the day that changed his life. And that's the day that changes your life. When you realize God looks at you Said, that's my girl. That's my boy. You're not, an, you're not an orphan anymore. You're in my crew. You belong to me. This guy just retired. He's a pastor in our denomination in Naples, Florida. Who comes from that background and has a family and, uh, and has a life and is a productive member of society. Who does? Somebody who's what? Adopted, right? Just wanna say one more word about the facts. Just quickly, I want you to think that, that, that there's evidence of being adopted. You know what the evidence is? Is that you adopt. The adopted adopt. Ephesians 5.1 says, 
therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Beloved children begin to love like their father has loved them. So listen to me, don't tune me out yet because some of you are saying, I don't even want the kids I have. I'm not gonna bring, uh, you know. um, Yes, it's adoption of babies and, and God's people have adopted orphans and babies and unwanted forever. Um, but, but it's so much more than that. It's an adoptive love that you give to other people. It's a giving to others what you've received and that is a home and a family and love and welcome. So you give that to children whose parents can't raise them. They may not be, uh, you may not adopt them. Singles need that kind of love. There was a single woman in our church, it was her birthday last week. Her mother came to celebrate her on her birthday. Why did her mother come from out of town? Because she's single, she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have children, she doesn't have people around her who are gonna celebrate um, her, right? The church, adoptive love, We welcome the lonely into our homes and into our lives. Exchange students, widowers. Do you know what it can mean for a widower? It's one thing to be a widow, but it's far harder to be a widower. You'd be a widower, you don't like go on trips with other guys, you know? Women do that um, together. But what would it mean to, to have a family with young children? Say, come over to our house and eat. Let's do it all the time. Teenagers. I heard a young woman say this week that um, she often spent, she grew up here and she's a very fruitful adult now. And she said, I, I often spent the night at the home of a family in the church because there was a lot of turmoil in my own home. Sometimes kids just need a place to, that's a safe place, right? A sanctuary. Uh, uh, my kids in Orlando, um, there's a knock on their door often. Um, somebody who just has to escape. Sometimes they have to escape being killed um, and they come to their house. You make those who are not a part of your family a part of your family. I don't mean they have to live there all the time, right? It's just an open arms to realize people around you are lonely and you adopt them, you love them. We had this single guy come to our church and he started, he adopted us. We didn't have a say. He he would come over and eat uh, at our house every Sunday after church and then he'd fall asleep on the couch and sometimes he didn't wake up till Monday morning, you know. (laughs) And he did it for years. And he left here 10 years ago at least, this church moved elsewhere. But this summer we flew out to California and I got to officiate at his wedding. My son, he's my son. Right? So, you you know, um, um, there's a book called The Triumph of Christianity. Uh, Rodney Stark wrote it. It's an amazing book. It it seeks to answer the question, how does a little group of people, um, uh, just a handful of people with a crucified Messiah actually form a faith that spreads to the whole world? And it's a historian, it's a very thick book. And he, and, but here's one of the things he said. Here's why, Christians procreate for one. They have more babies. But the other is, he said, they adopt. In the ancient world, they, had, uh, they didn't have abortion in the same way. In the ancient world, what you did is you had the child and then you did away with the child. 
You left the child exposed in the wilderness or the wild animals uh, or whatever would kill them. You put them out on the seashore at night in low tide so when the high tide came, it would wash them away. Well, guess what Christians did? They combed the um, wilderness. They combed the uh, areas of town where they knew that happened. They combed the beaches and they picked up the kids and they brought them home and they made them their own. Isn't it wild that a historian would recognize that as what changed the world? You know what we think will change the world? Putting a yard sign in our yard or a bumper sticker on our car for the next presidential election. Watching Fox News or CNBC and hating those Republicans and hating those commie liberals and hating... Hating never changed anybody. Being, Being superior to other people, shaming other people doesn't change our world. You know what does? The adopting love of God. All right, point two. Gosh, this is flying by. Um, so what are the benefits of adoption? Uh, here we go. What happens? What, do you, what happens when we become God's child? Well, intimacy, we get the intimacy our hearts crave, right? You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, right? Um, do you know when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, we see you pray. And you talk to God like nobody else that we ever see talk to God. How do you talk to God? Tell us, teach us how you talk to God. And what did Jesus say? What was the first words? When you talk to God, say this. Abba. Abba. That's the Aramaic word for father. But it's, it's familiar. It's, it's like, what's the word for father in English? Well, father. But yeah, but what does a little baby say? What are the words off the baby's lips? Dada. Dada. Abba. Abba. Daddy. Nobody ever talked to God like that. Abraham didn't call God that. Moses didn't call God that. David didn't call God that. Hannah didn't call God that. Ruth didn't call God. Nobody. Nobody. Solomon didn't call God that. None of the prophets called God, Abba, only Jesus. And he told the disciples, no, you call God that. You call God that, that familiar, that intimate, right? Pray like this. Um, And you know what? Jesus does it every time. Every time but one in the Bible, that's what he calls God. You know what that one was? on the cross when he was separated from God for his brothers and sisters' sake. Intimacy, intimacy with God. He invites us to call God that. God's not distant and aloof and and unattentive. You know, we have a beautiful church office over here and uh, we have a lot of kids on our campus every day and they just are not welcome in our office (laughs) because the clergy work there and, uh, and we are holy men of God, of God. And we are praying and meditating and, and preparing these epic sermons. And, and um, you can't have kids cluttering. Except kids named Amos and Fisher and Hudson and Jimmy. Because those are the children of staff. You see, they have access all the time. They run up and down the hallways because they belong to people who work there. 
You're God's children. You have access to him. You're in a, you're in a position of priority. There was a Harvard study started in 1938, one of the largest studies ever launched to study people their entire lifetime. Did you know that? Uh, 268 students that they began studying in 1938 and they studied them till they died. And here's the question, what's the most determinative factor in their flourishing? And they determined in that study it was not their birth order. It wasn't firstborn, lastborn, middle child, and that stuff. It wasn't birth order, it wasn't social class, it wasn't rich or poor or middle class, it wasn't their body type, it wasn't big and strong, little scrawny, anything in between. It wasn't their political affiliation of their family. Do you know what the determining determinative factor of a child flourishing throughout the course of their life was the warmth of the parenting they received? There it is. Intimate. Warmth. Um, from your parents. I love this, the, the account somebody told me that every time uh, they went to hug their wife, their little three-year-old butts in. The little three-year-old sees them uh, having affection and they get up from whatever they're doing and they rush over and they wedge right in between and they say, group hug. (laughs) Group hug. That's what the Bible invites us to experience. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a hug from all eternity and God says, come join the circle. Experience this. You got it? Intimacy is the fruit of adoption. Secondly, I want you to see fathering is the fruit of adoption. What does it say in Hebrews? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he, he loves. What does the confession um, say? We're pitied, protected, provided for, chastened. In other words, he fathers us, right? We have a father. He fathers us. He provides for us. He directs us. Royal children have to be trained for the duties of the crown. We are chiseled by God into the image of our older brother. We must learn the ways of our dad. You with me? Um, I'm going to give right now a challenge to any boys that are in this room, to any teenagers, to any young men, to anybody who has a boy, any parent that has a boy or a teenager. You know, here's, here's my challenge. I, through the years, I ask people, what do you want to do when you grow up? I do it, I've done it this weekend. When I just see children, that's something I often ask. What do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And what do you think a, a teenager or an early college student says today if you ask them that question? Uh, little kids say, I want to be a football player, right? I want to be a pro football player. Uh, what, is some, what does an older uh, male say? I want, to be a, I want to be a coach. I want to be a doctor. I want to be uh, in the tech industry. I want to be a, a builder want to be in the finance world. What they're really saying is, what I want to be is wealthy. I want to have a great house. I want to have a killer wife. I want to have um, uh, a car uh, that's a sweet ride. And I want to have the financial ability to travel wherever I want. Can I tell you something? There's an alternate vision. There's a better vision for your life. When somebody asks you, what do you want to be? What do you want to do with your life? I pray with all my heart that what comes out of you is, I wanna be a dad. I wanna be a father. This is the highest calling. You see, the vocation is a way to honor God with what you do. It's also a way to provide for your family, right? Because your family is your priority. I wanna be a dad. I wanna take the kind of love I've received from my dad, my heavenly father, and I wanna give it 
And I want to die for my wife and I want to die for my children and I want to mentor them and I want to do life with them and I want to teach them because that's the aim of my life. Mary, have children. Disciple your children. Parent your children. That is your calling. How many, I mean, everybody has a biological father, but how many Biological fathers have never fathered. This is the calling from God. So I watched this um, documentary called Try Harder. It was made about four years ago, fascinating. And it was a high school, San Francisco Bay Area, the most um, uh, academically motivated, intelligent kids. They're taking, you know, they're taking um, uh, um, advanced everything, advanced calculus, advanced this, advanced that, you know, I mean, every competitive, and, and it tracks them their senior year, their junior year, whatever, they're filling out college applications and they're writing their essays and they're competing for the best colleges in America, the whole high school. It's a frenzy of competition among the, the, the elite young minds uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they, they apply to every Ivy League school. They apply to Johns Hopkins and Emory and every uh, good school. In fact, they act like going to Cal Berkeley would be such an insult. Almost like going to a trade school. And uh, they want the best of the best. And the number one school, the number one target, the hardest school to get into on all of America is Stanford. And it's right in their backyard. And every kid in that school, that is the plum. Stanford. And one by one, they show the kids, you know, when, when the decision day comes from the colleges. And sometimes they go down their top 12 choices. Didn't get in, didn't get in, didn't get in, didn't get in. You see these kids just crushed. And I mean, these are the best of the best. And, uh, and, and nobody gets into Stanford. Nobody. They get everywhere else. They get every, every Ivy League school, everywhere else, everywhere else. Nobody gets into Stanford. Well, they show one kid throughout the whole documentary. He has a dad, but you know what? He's always moving in the documentary because his dad's an addict. His dad uh, spends all day part drinking and drugs. So his dad actually spends all night doing that. He spends all day sleeping wherever they live, but they're constantly having to move because he never pays the rent. And um, uh, so he's moving from place to place. He makes his own, he's alone every night. He makes his own um, dinner. The only reason he has food is his grandmother gives him money to buy food to feed himself. This kid is all alone. In the last scene of the documentary, he checks on his computer on decision day. And what does it say? Stanford! Stanford! And he begins to run around his apartment and jump on the couches and, and uh, just goes wild. I got it, I got it, I got it. I just goes crazy. And then the documentary ends with the most heartbreaking words when he suddenly stops and he says, but who do I have to tell? What do we get from God? We get a father. Third, and let me finish quickly now, we get security. This is the greatest challenge for, for the adopted, but what does it say in Romans? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Um, you know, to believe that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Do you realize that? That's true. 
He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. The confession says we will never be cast off. We are sealed to the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is given to us and he bears testimony with our spirit that we're children of God. You know what that's a reference to? In any court of law, to establish a fact, you needed what? Not one witness, but two. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, your spirit can testify that you're a child of God. Not good enough. Not good enough. So you're given the Holy Spirit. So between your spirit and the Holy Spirit, those are the two witnesses. It's true. What does Romans say? Why do you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is given into you to whisper into your heart constantly the love of God because we struggle to believe it. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us security. Think of the prodigal son. He couldn't sin his way out of his father's love, could he? And that father is a picture of God. Listen, I'm an earthly father and I have four children. And I will tell you this, um, I'm just an earthly father. But if my kids do the most vile, heinous act that could be imagined on this earth, and they are strapped to a, a gurney ready to put a poison in their arm to end their life as the judgment of the state against them, then I will fight with every ounce of my being to be in that room and hold their hand and let the last words they ever hear on this earth be their father saying to them, I love you with all my heart and I'm proud of you. And you'd do that too. And our heavenly father would do that, right? Nothing. Children thrive with security and God goes out of his way to give it um, to us. So my daughter in, um, in Orlando, my daughter and son-in-law in Orlando adopted uh, two years ago. And uh, this is the little troublemaker um, right there they adopted. Now my daughter read a lot about adoption. She said a lot of read, read a lot about separation anxiety and all the issues that children face even when they're adopted right at birth. And, and she's taken extraordinary means to form a bond with this um, child, right? Because she, she wants to uh, truncate that. She wants to cut that off at the past. She wants this child to know extraordinary security. That's your father. You're his adopted. He doesn't want you afraid. You know the book, The Runaway Bunny? If you don't, what's the matter with you? It's been a classic for children for over 80 years about a mother whose little bunny says, you know, I'm going to become a bird and fly away from you. And the mother says, well, then I'll be a tree and I'll be where you fly to go home. Why is that so popular? Because every child wants to know that they'll never be cast off. And last then, Status, what is status? And if you're a children, then you're an heir. You're an heir of God. You're a fellow heir with Jesus. Servants lived in the house. They had food and shelter, but they didn't have rank or position or privilege. And of all the children, who had the most privilege? The oldest son. The oldest son was the heir. You didn't divide your um, wealth among all of your children. That was foolish in the ancient world because your wealth was almost always property. So if you divided your property among every kid, 
then they all had four kids and divided all that property among four kids in a generation or two, your family's essentially um, dissipated its influence. The oldest, the oldest got virtually everything. The oldest was the head of the family. The oldest had the most status. Do you know what this passage says? If you're a child of God, then you're an heir. Wait a minute, only sons were heirs. But that's not what God says here. If you're a child of God, male or female, do you realize how subversive that was? In a culture where people could not even imagine women being regarded as valuable at all. And Paul is saying, if you're a woman and you're a child of God, you're the oldest son. You are the oldest son. Wow. I had a lot of insecurity as a child. My, um, my grandfather was unbelievably successful. My father was a highly respected um, man. My brothers they were always winning like state championships and MVPs. My sister's so stinking smart. She was, I mean, curse that woman. She's, uh, <laughs> and then there was me. I had buck teeth and I was really skinny. My older brother called me the saber tooth toothpick. But I had one thing going for me. I really think I was my granddad's favorite. <laughs> it's true, Catherine. I was my granddad's favorite. And if you struggle with insecurity, I wanna tell you something. Don't, don't look at envy with people who have prestigious jobs and beautiful spouses and accomplished kids and, and they got a killer house and a condo at the beach and a boat and ski vacations and Telluride because you know what you have? You're an heir of the king of the universe, the owner of the whole thing. And not only that, you're his favorite. Amen. Let's pray. You're a good, good father. We have a worthy father. And it makes all the difference. So, Lord, may it sink so deep in us that well-loved children were secure enough to love others well, too. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. We love you, Dad. Thank you, Daddy. We love you for loving us. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.